They call it the Black North. Should have called it the Cold North. Could you ever imagine that just a few hundred miles north of Cork could be this cold? I get travel sick in the back of the jeep. Sometimes I wondered if it was really claustrophobia. Four men shut inside a tin can with only a dim overhead light, breathing in the steel and recirculated air, knowing there was nothing you could do but endure the bone-shaking journey in a vehicle built for survival rather than comfort. At one point we took on a role that then became an identity, and that identity now defines us. I'm no longer Eddie nor you, David. I'm a guard, you're a peeler. We're a uniform. Not real people. And rightly or wrongly, we now view the world from that perspective. It's a strange feeling. That of being hunted. It's not like driving into a random ambush. That way, you're an anonymous target. But when you know someone is specifically targeting you, watching your movements, compiling a dossier with your name at the top of it, seeking an opportunity to kill you. Also, this part of the field can join that part of the field. Do you think it will ever end? Listen to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad, and coming up next week or this week in Ottawa, uh, there is a production coming in from Ireland, Green and Blue, and it is with Kabosh. And Paula McFetridge from Belfast has been with Kabosh. Uh, she's been in the theatre sector since 2006, a highly experienced director, and Paula's directing the play. And um, while those of us in Ireland are very familiar and we would relate instantly to green and it's a green and it's a green and orange. So why green and blue? Well, green and blue explores the painful and humorous realities focused by the individuals who patrolled the border during the years of the conflict. And while we in the south were very familiar with Dungard, the Shiokana were in blue. Well, in the north of Ireland, the RUC were in green. Hence, uh, ironically, it's green and blue. Uh, Paula McFetridge, you're very, very welcome indeed. And thanks a million for coming along. Thanks so much, Austin. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, it's been a bit of a journey with this show, but uh, it really seems to connect with people. So we're delighted to be taking it up to Ottawa. And, you know, the realities um, for people, uh, let's say, over 40, mm-hmm. uh, are, they would be aware if they have lived at all on the island of Ireland, if they lived at all, would have been be very aware of the tension that existed in Ireland and that um, the Good Friday Agreement alleviated. But prior to the Good Friday Agreement and the implementation of it, the tensions that existed between the North and the South and particularly even the tensions that existed between law enforcement in the north and the south. So do you want to give a little bit of context? Yes, I will. Um, We're a theatre company based in Belfast, as you say, that uh, tries to give voice to those people whose voices aren't necessarily being heard and also to create provocative theatre that helps people grapple with the legacy of conflict. 
So I think it's hugely important that we embrace the arts potential to to kind of inspire people to maybe think differently. And they do that because they hear something they necessarily haven't heard before, you know. And we always work with a community-based organization. And on this occasion, it was an organization called Diversity Challenges. And they, for many years, have been gathering the stories of Angarda Shea and RUC that patrolled the border during the height of the conflict. And it quite often what happens when you do that, you know, when you gather stories, they're just sitting in an archive and people won't hear them unless they have donated a story or else they're connected to uniform or else they're an academic. And so thankfully, they thought it'd be a good idea for an artist to interpret the stories, to take them into different communities, to communities that would never hear the story of policing. And so uh, thankfully, a great playwright, I've worked with on multiple occasions, Lawrence McKeown, uh, who some people will know, uh, he's a uh, Republican ex-prisoner, uh, was on hunger strike in Maisel-on-Keth, would have been the 11th man to die, went into a coma. His mother intervened and he woke up. And when he finally left prison, he's been working a lot in kind of grassroots development. Him and I have worked together a lot. And we, over two years, developed and created this play. Lawrence has done a beautiful job. And we worked with a committee of ex-officers. And so we have toured it into the hearts of communities ever since then. We've toured it all over the world to Prague, Dresden, Brussels, Edinburgh, London, Cross England. And now for the first time, we're in the States. But the thing that's interesting about it is, is that, yes, it's about the person behind the uniform, but it's also about borders. It's also about the legacy of conflict. And I think that what we're surprised by is some of us feel we do know the story of the RUC because as you rightly say, they were so embroiled in conflict. And I think that there have been various projects done over the years about the North. But we've never talked about the similarities and the differences between Angarda Khan and the RUC. And actually, a lot of the men on the border, have, you know, for example, like the boys that were on the Fermanagh border from the guards were from Cork. Mm-hmm. So they were further away from home than the RUC men even were. Mm-hmm. And they, they were more isolated, went through the same trauma, and yet they weren't armed. So they were searching cars with torches. They maybe had a radio that might work, but only if you walked for five minutes from the Garda station. And most of them were on the border, dropped on the border in the morning and left there all day. They were fed by the Irish Army, which is incredible. All their radios were installed and maintained by the RUC. So there was a lot of communication went on between both. It's just it's never been talked about. Um, And I think particularly when you look at I suppose, policing and borders within a global context at the minute. I think we've so much to say about the rest of the world if we look at what happened and what is happening in Ireland. But it's very funny play. I mean, that's the other thing about it. It's very funny because it's about miscommunication. Like the RUC guy doesn't even think the guy from Cork speaks English. Now, I know a lot of us think people from Cork don't speak English. But apart from that, <laughs> it does lend you a lot of humour. Well, be very careful. I'm married to a Cork woman. <laughs> well, you know what I mean then, Austin. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and my father was from Belfast. Oh, so I used, to get, I used to get the accent coming out when we were on the phone. I, I didn't notice it when I'd speak to him, but on the phone it, it came through. Um, no, one of the, some of the things that you just said that struck me, I remember driving from Dublin over to Bundoran and crossing the border in the process. Mm-hmm. This was back in 19... 19- 79 mm-hmm. and I remember being stopped uh, after crossing the border and uh, it was a case of going through and weaving through there was nowhere where you were getting through because there were three army vehicles 
Yeah. You would have had to go through and the guns were pointing at you. And um, it was something I, I as a, someone born in the South and, and not familiar with uh, guns, it was quite uncomfortable, was, is using very mildly. Now, I will, <laughs> I will say that both my wife and I at that time, we worked, uh, had been working in the Bank of Ireland. And mm-hmm. we were very familiar with when the money arrived that the army were outside and had guns and my wife had been in one bank raid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, our perception of, as you described, the guards in the South, no arms, and the guards in the, and the RUC armed, these are subtleties that you don't think about. No, no. And the number of people that say that to us, you know, they say to us in post-show discussions, did you purposely give the RUC man all the weaponry? And you're going, no, this is actually what it was. You know, and when you see them standing beside each other and you know that you were, that they were standing on the same field, you know, just on opposite sides of a line, as we say in the play, that only a farmer knows where the line is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that, that many of them didn't even necessarily know where the border was. And yet they're standing there and looking completely different. Mm-hmm. And also that the guard, you know, would have been living within the heart of the communities. He would have been saying in a local B&B run by a landlady for multiple guards and multiple tax inspectors. And the RUC man would have been staying, would have been isolated in a police station that you had to helicopter cigarettes into. Mm-hmm. So even though they were only a stone's throw from each other, it's actually quite incredible. And the other thing we said in the play is that uh, the border itself would have only been 100 miles long if we'd gone as the crow flies. But because we're Irish, we like to meander a bit. And so we ended up with 300 miles of border instead of 100 miles. And I think that's huge in itself as well, you know, that an island that's that small, uh, protecting or preserving a man-made line in the ground at 300 miles long takes an awful lot of manpower. The other thing I suppose that would be very much reflected in this is that law enforcement, no matter where in the world, is somewhat reflective of society. And the Irish attitude to law enforcement, uh, I know there was a debate in Ireland when the Garda Síochána were being formed about whether or not they would be armed and the decision was made they should be mm-hmm. unarmed. Um, mm-hmm. And you grow up in that ethos. Yeah. And in that ethos, you know, I always used to joke that when a cop came along, a guard came along and put their hand on your shoulder and said, you're caught, you accepted you were caught. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if, yeah. the, if the guards are armed or if the RUC, be it the police are armed in Canada or wherever, there's a more of an aggression about everything. There is, yeah. And particularly when you're looking at, you know, young men in their, you know, late teens sometimes, early 20s, who are standing there with a gun and the only thing between you and death is a finger on the trigger. Yeah. You know, you know, because it, like a lot of us were taught, like I did another project that looked at the security ring of steel around Belfast and anyone who'd ever been in Belfast or even in Derry or elsewhere, you know, being searched every day to go into the shops and then being searched going into the individual shops. And then, you know, shaking that takes a long time. You know, I remember being on tour in Scotland with the Abbey Theatre and still going into shops and opening my bag and people thinking it was the most bizarre thing they'd ever seen. But it becomes part of your everyday life, as you say, part of your ritual. Yeah. And uh, you, you, you take the most extreme as normal. You know, when I reflect back on obviously what we experienced growing up in the height of the conflict, you know, there were certain things that you saw on a regular basis or were in the midst of that nobody should have to live through. And yet 
we managed to survive with such a, I suppose, macabre sense of humour and such an ability to tell stories about it that um, it's almost mythical, you know. Um, yeah, I remember it being in Donegal Place going through a turnstile. Yeah, yeah. Get into it. And that like that was very poignant. I can't remember mm-hmm. the year. But I remember going downtown and having to walk through a turnstile to go into a pedestrian shopping area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like we had a lot of that up until kind of late 80s in Belfast, mm-hmm. you know. And even up until like the last of the Gordons didn't come down until 94, you know. But also as well, as I mean, as I, like I say quite often in discussion is, you know, the rest of the world like we're, we're like pulling down uh, walls and borders, but obviously in the north that they're increasing. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're coming into Ottawa. We are uh, indeed. And uh, we certainly, uh, it, it is an occasion that is not to be missed. There, the great thing I, I also have to mention here is that once you emigrate, well, just uh, I want to come back to something else, but once you emigrate, the very concept you're talking about tends to vanish, and that's borders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you find yourself outside of. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. These borders evaporate in most cases and where they don't, there's issues. But, you know, you sit down with people who were from a different tradition on a different mm-hmm. side of a border and the border and the traditions are not as, conf- uh, there's, the conflict has evaporated. Yeah, but I also think as well that like what we discovered in England and actually what we discovered in uh, Pittsburgh as well, we were there a week before last, was a number of people that talked to us about that, that when they left Ireland, that they kind of parked a lot of the, I suppose, narratives that they hadn't really talked about, pain maybe they'd experienced, or uh, memories. And what's been lovely for them experiencing this show is that it has reminded them of their DNA, reminded them of what they've come from, and actually helped them have conversations with their children, their grandchildren, uh, like about home. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also hugely important because I think quite often, particularly when you're dealing with things that are emotional, you don't tend to sit around the dinner table and talk about it because you're terrified of passing on the memory as a single identity thing where you only tell your version of it. And so I think that's also great. But also, as I like was saying to you off air, like yesterday morning we did it for uh, 70, 17-year-olds in Manhattan. And the number of them that were second and third generation Irish who have seen photographs of the grandparents in the guards or the RUC, but it's never talked about. So I think that's hugely important as well, you know. The other thing I want to refer back to is we talked in terms of how the difference that this line on the ground that the farmer knows where it is and nobody else knows Mm -hmm. is so impactful that have you presented this in the north of Ireland? and in the south of Ireland, and how has it gone down, and what has been the reaction been? Oh, the mad thing is, Austin, we've been turning this play on and off since 2016, and we have taken it to every single community imaginable. We did it as part of a fit-up festival in East and West Cork, where we performed at crossroads and community centres. We did it in an island off the coast of Cork. We've done it in Republican clubs, uh, all across the border area. We've done it. We did it for a big Garda dinner in Athlone for 240 guards. We did it uh, in the RUC Social Club in Belfast. We've done it in theatres. And every single time, there is such a visceral reaction to the uniforms. Uh, 
that when the two actors turn around in the uniforms, they get a sense of who the audience are initially going to align themselves with. Um, and for any of your listeners from home, the only place that he hated them both equally was Straban. And that's understandable. <laughs> but um, like, I think it's very interesting when people, people are really genuinely moved when you bear witness to them, when you tell their story in a version back to them slightly differently that reminds them of who they are and that they existed. But also as well, I think that when you're trying to look at a story that helps people connect with the person behind the uniform, naturally people get angry if they see that person as their enemy. And I think that's one of the things that we pride ourselves on at Kabosh is actually trying to provoke difficult conversations. Because I think in order to be in, you know, move towards an inclusive, healthy society where there is space for multiple narratives, as you rightly say, then I think we need to ask the difficult questions on occasions. Mm-hmm. I mean, the response has been incredible. Like the reason the play is still going is because every time we do it, somebody sees it and invites us back. Mm-hmm. And there are many communities in Ireland that we're taking the play to now that were never ready to hear it whenever we first did it. And we're also, thanks to funding from the Department of Foreign Affairs in Ireland, we started doing it, doing it in schools at home as well, because quite a lot of the teachers were saying, just like, listen, we're teaching the conflict, mm-hmm. but we need to teach it in a three-dimensional human way where young people aren't simply reading kind of limited stuff in books but they actually get to experience it in a communal way, in the same way as we do with sport, where you mm-hmm. put people in a space that don't know each other and they become part of something different, something live, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the response has been incredible, you know. Um, and even to date on this kind of, you know, North American tour, it's amazing how it connects with people. Talking North American tour, you're at St. Bridget's on 22-24 November, and you can mm-hmm. get tickets for that. Uh, if you go to kibosh.net, you'll get a link over to that. It's on Eventbrite, yeah. and um, you'll find all the details there. Um, and you'll also find it if you go to stbridgetscentre.ca is the website there. Uh, Paula, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you, catching up and learning about it, and I know that you will engage the audience and stimulate the audience. And I know that some of the audience have um, a history that uh-huh. is on each side of the border. Yes, just like your good self. So hopefully yourself and your corp wife will get along, Austin. <laughs> Thanks, Paula. Thanks, Austin.